With me today is Bart Rakoski, our analyst for financial services and industrials, especially elevators, which will be the topic of today's discussion. Hey, Thomas, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be back. Excited to discuss a cool industry and a couple companies we like. So how did we first get interested in the elevator industry and why do we like it? Yeah, so I think there's a few types of industries that we like to get into here. Um, in the elevator in, in per industry in particular fits a few of these. So it's a very consolidated industry where uh, the market share is dominated by the top handful of players and there's high barriers to entry to get into it. So those top players have pretty strong moats, good reinvestment opportunities over time, and they're very cash generative. Uh, we think there's multiple levers for them to improve into the future. Uh, so we think this is a, a great sector to buy and just hold your investments kind of you know, indefinitely or for forever. Can you give a quick overview of the elevator manufacturing business and how these companies make money? Yeah, so uh, I think we'll just take it from the, from the start where if you're putting together a new property, uh, you need to put it in an elevator, basically anything two floors or higher. Uh, so when you do that, uh, it takes about a year or so to go through the whole process of ordering uh, an elevator through manufacturing to delivery. During the property development process, uh, the new equipment will be submitted through an RFP bidding process. There's usually three or four bidders for each of the product projects, uh, and the property developer is the customer. So they'll sell the original elevator. Uh, it can be uh, pretty bespoke or specialized, so especially if you have some of these taller skyscrapers in a place like New York City or Singapore or Hong Kong, et cetera, uh, and all the way down to you know two or three floor residential uh, building somewhere that's a, a much more simple process, but uh, that's basically where you go through it, um, first with the property developer. And then once the elevator is installed, it comes with a one to two year warranty if anything goes uh, wrong or needs to be fixed in that time, the, the original manufacturer can, will cover that. But then after the warranty expires, after a year or two, the uh, OEM tries to get the customer on a multi-year service agreement. And this is where they really make their money. Uh, about 40% 40, 40 of the industry's revenue and 60% of its profit is from these service contracts. If we just look at the margin comparison for the OEs, uh, it's, you know, mid to high single digits for the new equipment and probably 25% for the service contract. So under the service contract, basically what's covered is any routine maintenance, visits, etc. So if you're the uh, building manager or the property owner, you'll pay a flat fee every month or every quarter to the service company and then they'll do all of that service. Any major repairs or other parts uh, could, be, could be on top of that, but at least early in the service contract, uh, most customers would expect everything to be covered uh, by their contract. And then the average elevator lasts about 20 years uh, or should be replaced every 20 years. Um, some can go a little bit longer. And then they typically do a modernization after 10 years. So part of the goal with the service contract is that the OEM wants to get the contract to do the modernization periodically. So that's kind of how the business works uh, in about 50% you know, of the revenue uh, is from the OE. However, that's lower margin, so it only comes out to about 30% of the profit. About 40% of the revenue is from the service contract, 60% of the profit, and the rest of it 
the remainder is for modernizations, which is about 10% of revenue, 10% of profit. And who are the top companies involved and what differentiates each of them? Yeah, so as I mentioned, it's a fairly uh, consolidated market where each of the top players is uh, a little bit unique and has kind of their specialty. So the largest player in the market is Otis. They have in the high teens market share total. Uh, Otis is an American company. It was spun off from United Technologies in 2020. They have the largest service portfolio in the world with a little over 2 million units under service contracts. And uh, they're also, they also have the number two market share in new equipment. So Otis, uh, they generate about 80% of their profits from services. It's largely a recurring revenue uh, contract-based model, and they've done very well over time. The stock is in the low 80s right now. It's spun off uh, in the high 40s, so it's been pretty successful over the last year and a half since it was spun out of UTC. Then there's two European companies that are next in terms of market share. Both are family-owned, have been around for a long time, and have been fantastically run businesses. So Kone is a company based in Finland. Their niche is that they dominate the new equipment market in China. So they have the number one market share of new equipment globally. But China, uh, as a country, accounts for about 60% of the new equipment market. Kone is number one. They have as much as 40% market share in China. They were very early getting in, and they were very successful at capturing the residential market, especially in some of the larger cities. Uh, so they've done very well in China. A little bit over half of their revenue comes from new equipment. So that's kind of their uh, their niche. And then they traded a premium multiple to peers. Part of that is because they have the strongest new equipment market share. Investors expect it'll turn into uh, recurring service revenue over time. Um, so they're a fantastic company. And Schindler, another uh, European family-owned business similar to Kone. Schindler is based in Switzerland. Uh, they're in many ways a European version of Otis. They have a service focus with uh, the number one service portfolio in Europe. Uh, about 40%, 45% of their revenue comes from Europe. This is, again, largely recurring contracts, generate a ton of cash flow. And over time, uh, they've successfully reinvested this, grown their market share elsewhere in the world. And they also pay out uh, variable dividends every once in a while. So it's been a consistent cash generator uh, for, uh, for investors over time. And what is the outlook for the industry over the next couple of years? What will be the main factors that drive the stocks? Yeah, so overall, uh, it's about a $70 billion market total. Uh, about two-thirds of that is in the service business and one-third in new equipment. We expect the market as a whole to grow at a mid to high single digit rate, somewhere in the, in the range of four to 7% per year over the next decade. Uh, new equipment specifically is a little bit higher. Uh, we expect that to be mid to high single digits, maybe more towards the five, six, 7%. Whereas service is uh, a lower growth market, low single digit, mid single digit. But we expect the OEMs to outperform in the service portfolio, which uh, we, we're pretty optimistic about. I'll discuss those trends in a moment. So the number one macro driver, uh, as I mentioned before, 60% of the new equipment uh, in the industry is in China. So that's going to be uh, the biggest growth driver growing for, going forward. Uh, we continue expect this to continue to grow at a similar uh, high single digit rate going forward. The rest of the world in terms of new equipment is really a low single digit grower. So in the US, it might be 
one or two percent similar to Europe. And then the other piece of this is uh, digitization. So traditionally, you know, the, the elevator that you would have put in 15 years ago and maybe the mid 2000s was really not that different from an elevator installed in 1950 other than some cosmetic aspects in the interior. Uh, but the technology was really not any different. But now uh, every, all the OEMs are rolling out connected IoT-enabled uh, elevators where you can even go on your smartphone and call the elevator ahead of time uh, to avoid traffic jams and to uh, reduce energy usage. So we think they're going to connect this data over time. It'll help lead to another revenue stream that could potentially be very high margin. And then the other piece of the digitization is that once you start creating the more complex elevator, uh, it becomes much more difficult for independent service providers to continue to maintain the elevator. So right now, the service market is a little bit more fragmented, where about 50% of the market is controlled by independents. However, among the digital elevators, uh, their share is much lower. And as the digital becomes a much larger piece of the pie over time, we think that uh, a lot of the service base is going to be a reattached to the OEMs. So in particular, you know, Otis has really made this a point of emphasis where they think uh, over half of their elevators uh, that are currently in service are serviced by someone independent. They think they could get a significant portion of this back over time, and that would be really strong recurring revenue to add to the base. So that's kind of what we're looking for. Uh, if I were to just summarize that quickly, it would be one, growth out of China, two, digitization, uh, and the new revenue streams, and three, reattachment of the service base, which should lead to uh, strong revenue and margins over time. And how does the Evergrande situation affect the elevator OEMs? Is there a wider risk among the Chinese property developers? Yeah, so I think uh, the quick point here is that Evergrande is a negative headline, but really is not much of an impact to them. However, China broadly as a whole, there's going to be some short-term pain, short-term pain uh, that leads to long-term gain. So really, the property developer situation started about a year ago, where the Chinese government instituted a new policy called the three red lines, which is basically three uh, credit metrics that it's applying to all the property developers. And if the property developers wish to continue borrowing money, they have to stay within these lines. It's, for example, rev uh, uh, leverage targets, interest coverage, uh, cash flow, et cetera. And the property development market had been pretty speculative and had a lot of leverage into it, in it. So as with Evergrande and a handful of other developers, there's about 10 developers total that have breached two of these three red lines uh, that the Chinese government has laid out. So in the next you know, couple quarters, they're going to have to get through that. Uh, but of the market as a whole, these 10 or so uh, property developers that are having issues constitute you know, less than 5% of the total market. So we think there's, there could be some pain within that little niche, but overall, the market as a whole should be stronger. And then the second part of this is that once all these property developers uh, get their financials in order and are within these three red lines, the sector is going to be much more financially healthy going forward. And this will obviously, one, help just being in terms of letting lower credit risk to the elevator OEMs and to other suppliers. And second, the Chinese government wants to continue opening the market to foreign capital. So by getting these credit numbers in order, 
uh, they'll bring more foreign capital into the country, which will enable more development, which will help the elevator OEMs. So short-term pain, hopefully a long-term gain over the next uh, 10 years. And as long-term investors, uh, we're, we're going to see through any weakness in the next couple quarters. You mentioned the three public companies and that ThyssenKrupp was taken private last year. What ultimately happens to ThyssenKrupp, and will they merge with someone? Yeah, so ThyssenKrupp Elevator was part of the larger industrial conglomerate, uh, ThyssenKrupp in Germany, who sold their elevator division to a consortium of private equity firms last year in 2020. Uh, Kone actually bid for the company during that time. Uh, saying that ThyssenKrupp is you know, essentially a one in, once-in-generation asset that comes up and that they would love to get it. But uh, the timing just didn't work out for them, and uh, it went to the private equity. So looking forward, you know, private equity typically has a three- to seven-year time horizon. So whenever uh, the private equity con- consortium gets uh, a little bit closer to their exit opportunities, um, I'd expect them to put it up for sale. Uh, I'd expect Kone to try to buy them. It may or may not work out again. If not, uh, there's a couple other options available to the uh, private equity firms. One, um, they could break up the company by region. Uh, To sell it to any of the other players, it might become more of an antitrust issue. Uh, So Otis and Schindler may not be able to, to try to buy them. But if they broke it up by region or by different types of services, uh, they could sell pieces to different competitors, and that could make sense. Or they could just take the company back public and IPO it. The elevator companies trade at very high multiples compared to the rest of the industrial world. They typically get a mid to high teens EBITDA multiple. Uh, so it's definitely possible that they can make, make some money that way. But you know, ultimately, it's, it's been a consolidated industry. Uh, ThyssenKrupp is the number four player, and there's really about six players total in the world, including the three that we've talked about, plus two Japanese players who really, there's really those six who uh, have any significant market share. So uh, I'd expect all the OEMs to try to get a piece of ThyssenKrupp if it was uh, back on the market in a few years. And finally, to finish up, what are your top stock picks for elevators? Yeah, so we have two stocks we really like. One is Otis. Uh, as I talked about, it's number one. It's the market leader. It has a very reliable service base, uh, and they are you know, strong in new equipment and should continue growing into the future. For anyone concerned about too many risks about China, uh, China's a relatively small piece of Otis, um, so there shouldn't be too many risks there, even though it's not one of our top concerns. But also, Otis has a number of self-improvement levers that they uh, can use to help themselves. Number one is reattaching the service base. So of the three OEMs, we believe that Otis has the lowest service attachment rate, uh, which means you know, of their installed base of elevators, the proportion that Otis uh, maintains versus one of their competitors or versus an independent provider. And these should be easy uh, ways to, for Otis to generate more revenue. And part of that is just adding a number of technicians and sales coverage, especially in China. Um, to get these back. Right now, Otis is trading in the low 80s. Uh, it's about $83 today. So we have it at about 15 times our 2023 EBITDA estimate, which is very, uh, we think that's pretty favorable versus historical multiples, which are uh, in the high teens for the elevator companies, and versus Thyssenkrupp, which was taken private in 
2020 for 17 times. So Otis, the market leader, trading below that valuation, we think uh, is pretty favorable for the stock. And then Kone, uh, we also like Kone. It's the primary growth vehicle for the industry, as I said. Uh, it's number one in China with 40% market share, and China will be uh, about 60% of the new equipment growth for the industry. This will turn into service contracts over time, and especially as the complexity of their elevators goes up, they, they should be able to retain a larger number of these service contracts than in the past. They have the strongest relationships in China, uh, especially in Tier 1, Tier 2 cities with these property developers. And today at about 20 times EBITDA, uh, it's more expensive than Otis or where Thyssen Krupp was taken private, but given that Kone is the fastest grower in the industry at probably a high single-digit rate, uh, we're forecasting 8% growth for, on the top line through 2025. Uh, we think that's a pretty reasonable multiple, and uh, that they should be able to grow their earnings at that rate while keeping their multiple over the next five years. That wraps up our discussion on elevators. It was very insightful. Thank you, Bart, for coming on again. All right. Thank you, Tommy, for having me on, and I uh, hope to be back on in a few months to discuss a few more companies. Several companies were mentioned in this episode. We own less than 1% of the following. Kone, ticker K-N-E-B-V-H-E, Schindler, ticker S-C-H-N-S-W or S-C-H-P-S-W, Otis Worldwide, ticker O-T-I-S, and Evergrande. Prior to beginning the discussion today, I must read the following disclosures. Equity investments are affected by market conditions. The intrinsic value of the stocks in which our portfolios invest may never be recognized by the broader market. The opinions expressed are current as of October 25, 2021, but are subject to change. The information provided in this podcast does not provide information reasonably sufficient upon which to base an investment decision and should not be considered a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security. Portfolio holdings are subject to change. The performance of any single portfolio holding is no indication of the performance of other portfolio holdings of any strategy or fund. Comments made on any individual company or stock is not an indication that it is currently held in a portfolio, nor is it an indication that it will ever be held in a portfolio.